you're listening to That Music Podcast with me, Bryson Tarbett. I'm the music educator and blogger behind That Music Teacher and ThatMusicTeacher.com. Join me as I dive into what it really means to be a music educator. I hope that you're able to find a nugget of inspiration each week as I share my favorite ways to create purposeful instruction through active music making. So grab a coffee, sit down, and let's get started. This episode is brought to you by a free five-day email challenge from me and Catherine Miller, all about including technology in the music classroom. Whether you have one-to-one devices or only a teacher device, we're going to share our favorite ways to incorporate technology in our classrooms in a meaningful way. To get on this free challenge, all you have to do is go to thatmusicteacher.com slash technology and sign up and we will send you the five-day challenge. Again, that's thatmusicteacher.com slash technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this week's episode of That Music Podcast. Today, I have Kelsey Burkett, and we're going to be talking about culturally responsive teaching in the music classroom. Kelsey, I'm so glad that you're able to join us today. Hi, Bryson. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So where did you go to school? Uh, What do you teach? Where do you teach? And things like that. Yeah, so I am both an undergrad and master's graduate of Capital University in Bexley, Ohio. Um, I'm currently teaching in the Hilliard City Schools at Hilliard Memorial Middle School. I teach 7th and 8th grade uh, choir and general music. And then I'm also the theater director there. And we do a huge musical every year. That's awesome. Yeah. So other than teaching, what is something that you're really passionate about and that brings joy into your life? Oh, my goodness. So I have a 16-month-old daughter. Her name is Harper. Um, She is the light of my life. You know, they tell you when you have a child, the world changes, and it truly does. Uh, So she brings me the greatest joy right now. Um, You know, in addition to her, I just, I am very passionate about social justice and finding good in the world. Um, I'm so inspired when I hear stories about people, you know, rising above their circumstances, um, especially right now with what's going on in the world. Um, (laughs) I'm just super passionate about that. I mean, I love good choral music. I love good food. um, And I love cats. I have a cat, Laverne. She's 16. She may join us at some point. Oh, my God. Yeah, mine is definitely (laughs) Laverne. She's very... Yeah, go ahead. Doesn't get in the way, but with you know being quarantined, she's like, "Why are you guys still here?" (laughs) Yeah, she's very curious about what's going on, especially my crazy portable classroom setup I have going here. (laughs) So you and me, we actually met at Capital University, both doing our masters. We Uh, did. You were in that last year doing the choral track, and Mm -hmm. then I was doing. I'm doing the the Kodai track, so it's really cool. I'm really glad that we finally were able to find a time that we could both do this. I know, and I we had a very special conversation kind of the last week, and I was like, I wanted to have this conversation two weeks ago, so (laughs) I'm so glad that we were able to connect for sure. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so Kelsey, what led you to pursue music education or a degree in music in general? And then how did you end up in your current position? Yeah, so I come from a long line of teachers. My grandmother actually was my fourth grade reading teacher. Um, And she also taught my brother because she was the only teacher in the building that was equipped to handle him. Um, (laughs) But, you know, she just was such an incredible teacher. She was so beloved in the elementary school. Um, And so she was kind of my first... 
you know, experience with really amazing um, education. I, I've always loved school. I've been that kid that was excited about going to school. Um, and so I just, you know, I wanted to keep doing it. I had really amazing history teachers growing up and really amazing music teachers growing up. So as time got closer to choosing a major in college, I knew, okay, I definitely want to be a teacher. Now, am I going to do music or am I going to do history? Because those were my two favorite subjects. Um, and then I was super involved in high school in my uh, department's, uh, my music department's program. We had show choir, acapella choir, magicals, theater, you know, everything you could imagine. Oh, and wow. I was, yeah, I was really lucky. It's Solon High School, if any of you are familiar with Solon up in Cleveland area. They are beasts in the show choir world. <laughs> um, it's changed a lot even since I was in it. But yeah, so that's where... Um, you know, I kind of got my start. I had several friends in my voice studio that also went to Capitol. Um, and so I knew that there was an incredibly rich choral tradition there. Um, I knew that they offered a lot of scholarship money, which was going to be a big deal, especially leaning towards more of the private liberal arts education. Um, and so it was very serendipitous. I auditioned, they offered me a ton of money. Um, and that just, I didn't want to do the huge college thing. Um, like some people did. And so I ended up at Capitol, sang in the chapel choir there. Just uh, what an experience to be able to sing under Linda Hassler. Uh, to this day, she's still a great friend and mentor. She's so brilliant. Um, got to travel in Europe for three weeks with the chapel choir, which was really amazing. Um, and then once I graduated, there were not a lot of jobs in the Columbus area and I was single and untied down at the time. So I knew I could, you know, was, could move. So I got a job in rural Southern Ohio, um, at Valley local schools in Lucasville, which if you're familiar with Ohio, yes, that is across the street from the state prison. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I am also a biracial female, so I was probably the first person of color uh, in an authority position that any of those kids had ever seen. Um, and the first two years there were incredible. They threw money at the program. They really wanted it to build something. Um, I took those kids to New York City for a huge competition, and they won, like, the whole competition. It was so cool. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was really amazing. Um the third year there was not so great. I won't go to details, but it just wasn't. And so I knew it was time to either, honestly, it was so bad. I was either going to quit teaching altogether or I just need to find another job. Um, yeah. And Hilliard at the time was getting to open up their third high school. And um, I knew stuff would shift around. So I had an application filled out in September, I think of that year. And in June, they called me and said, we'd like you to come in for an interview. And within three days, I had a new job, had packed up my apartment and moved to Hilliard. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> it was talk about like, you know, you know, God moment, you know, spiritual serendipitous, whatever you want to think it was all the stars were aligned for me at that point. So and that's then awesome. I, yeah, so I've been here for 11 years. And it's been awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so 
what do you, what does it mean to you to teach responsibly and um, with cultural responsibility? I guess, and why do you, why is that important? Do you think? Yeah, I think you know, especially at the middle school level, I see a lot of kids who are kind of starting to experiment with choir and what that means. And I think we get into trouble when we try to do the same type of repertoire over and over and over again. So for me, um, one thing I started doing my first year in Hilliard is we do a world music concert in March. And yeah, and it's so it's been really interesting to watch because it falls at a time in the year when I've always had the most time to really work on technique and, you know, the really pedagogical aspects of choral singing. But at the same time, we're starting to explore music that is not natural to us, whether it's not in English or it's from a different country or it's different rhythmically or it has different harmonics in there. Um, And I always try to program something that I know I will have at least one kid that can identify with, that can help us with the pronunciation of the language, that could explain some of the cultural context of where that music comes from. Um, And so that has just been such a great thing um, for my kids. Every year, parents always say it's their favorite concert of the year. Um, The kids get so excited about the music. Ironically, today was supposed to be our world music concert for this year. I know it was supposed to be today. So I'm a little sad today um, because we were doing such cool music. I know, but, you know, it's just, I think it's, I think we get into trouble and I know we'll touch on this a little bit later. um, As choral educators, I think sometimes we think if we throw in an African piece or we throw in a Spanish language piece that we are being culturally responsive. And I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. I think it's also important to realize that singing is not a natural part of everyone's culture. Um, One thing I've learned over the years that for my Muslim students, you know, singing in as a female in a Muslim country is looked down upon. Um, and so singing may not not be a natural thing or a parent may not, you know, um, understand it. It's also been a struggle for some of my, um, Muslim males that I've had some students whose parents either didn't know they were signed up for choir or, um, you know, have been very wary of holiday pieces we do. And, um, you know, I've had to adjust to that. You know, I've had students who are Jehovah's Witnesses and um, they can't do any sort of holiday type music or any music um, showing patriotism or anything like that. And so it's just really important, I think, for us to understand why there are those reasons and then to adjust our teaching practices to fit those kids so they don't feel ostracized, they don't feel singled out, um, and they still feel like they're wanted to be a part of the ensemble. I really like that shift between, you know, don't not focus on, you know, what's different about it, but focus mm-hmm. on why, why that's different. You know, why right. is that, 
why is that something they believe? Why is it something that's different between you and them? I think it's nice to kind of acknowledge those differences rather than just noticing them. Exactly. And, you know, I've been able to have really great conversations with the kids um, about it. And then those that have felt comfortable, they've even taught the other students about it. And, um, you know, it's been a really great educational moment for all of us, because I think so many times when we see something that's different than us, we either stay back from it or we judge it instead of learning about it. I mean, that's just a life lesson. That's not even yeah. music. <laughs> so, yeah, that's kind of my thought process on it. I'm sure there are some much more knowledgeable people out there that have really beautifully worded statements about what culturally responsive teaching is or is not. Um, but yeah, that's just my opinion on it. No, I love that. I think that really wraps it in a way that's kind of easy to digest, um, but really still kind of honors the the differences that we have and, you know, why that those not, not only are okay, but actually help enrich us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. So <laughs> I know this is going to be uh, one of those <laughs> questions, but what do you think people get wrong about being culturally responsive? Yeah, I think it goes back to kind of what I said about like throwing in an African piece. <laughs> I mean, this is from a choral standpoint. Um, you know, oh, I'll just program the Shoshaloza. Everyone knows Shoshaloza. Yes, everyone does know Shoshaloza. But what is the historical significance of Shoshaloza? Why is that piece important? Um, I think also, too, and again, and this is coming from a choral standpoint, um, there is, there's a lot of repertoire out there that is in the style or has the text of a different country or a different culture, but is not necessarily an authentic piece, um, which I think we really have to be careful of when programming um, things. I think the other thing people get wrong about culturally responsive teaching, that is, if I am personally not of this culture or have an understanding of it, therefore I cannot talk about it. I think that's wrong. And I think that's what we get wrong as both as educators and as human beings. I think it's important to educate yourself about um, an issue and be able to discuss it and also be able to say to your students, hey, I am such and such. I don't know a lot about this. Help me. Um, You know, I've found a lot of times with some of my Caucasian colleagues that they just don't want to touch some of these subjects. And I think that's just a fear uh, complex and about getting it wrong. And I think our kids are a lot more open than we give them credit for and would be a lot more appreciative if they saw that we were making an effort versus just avoiding it altogether. Um, And I think that... That's a disservice we do to kids if we don't acknowledge their differences and we don't acknowledge their cultural background. Um, I think one thing that I've experienced over the years, and Hilliard has become more diverse in the time that I've worked here, um, is the socioeconomic differences within my choral program and having to adjust my expectations of being able to purchase a polo shirt or even having transportation to get to an evening concert. Um, There's just such an awareness that needs to be there of our population of students. Um, And we just, we have, we have to force ourselves to get out of our comfort zone and be aware of those things. And I think you, you touched on it really well, but I think a lot of the time, um, the 
reason we stay away from these things is because we don't want to get it wrong. We don't want to offend someone. But I think as long as we're coming at it in, I mean, you're going to hear this a lot with this, you know, <laughs> with the current situation, you're going to hear a lot in good faith. Yeah, I feel like if we're going at things with good faith um, and being acknowledging that, Hey, I'm not of this culture, but I I'm trying to figure this out or, you know, things like that. I think that that's a healthy way for us to have these discussions mm-hmm. instead of just assuming that, you know, or just not touching it with a 500 foot pole because we don't want to get it wrong. Right. I think you really summed up in a really good way. And I think, you know, I don't think there's an excuse anymore because we literally have the world at our fingertips with the internet and, you know, if you yourself don't have the knowledge, someone out there does and you can find them. Um, there's just so many online resources and Facebook groups and Instagram. And, you know, I just I don't I don't. I'm trying to find the word. <laughs> I don't take kindly to people who say I can't do this because, yes, you can. Um, you know, there are ways to figure it out. Yeah. And and that's the thing. It's not going to be easy all the time absolutely <laughs> but like, not but again yeah. it's it's one of our our jobs as teachers to sometimes do things that are hard and sometimes mm-hmm. do things that make us uncomfortable so that we're able to better serve our students and, and especially i love how you said knowing the students we have so that we're able to best serve them absolutely absolutely so in the past few months, I've seen a lot, um, especially on these, you know, music Facebook groups and things like that about culture responsive teaching, um, particularly when it comes to um, folk music that we are finding has racist history. Mm-hmm. And I know that there's a lot going on to this in this conversation, uh, but it, it sometimes I feel like teachers are thinking that it doesn't matter or that it's just ignore it since we've been doing it so long that way. What is your opinion on being able to have that folk, you know, the folk background, but at the same time honoring the students that we teach and not um, perpetuating racist stereotypes and music and things like that. You know, I think there's so much out there of the folk repertoire that we can use that will cater to students of different cultures that you don't need to use the ones you've always used. Um, I think, you know, from an African-American standpoint, this is kind of where my my kind of wheelhouse is, you know, when you're talking about like my mammy told me like that piece has such a um, kind of a dark context to it about what the mammy, who the mammy is and what the black female role was in white households for so long. Um you know, that just cannot be a piece that is done anymore. I think you could go, if you're wanting to get into some of that rich folk history, look at a spiritual, look at a really simple, you know, version of wait in the water or follow the drinking gourd. There's so, there's so much um, richer history with those pieces um, that actually show the positive side of the African-American journey. And I think you know, if you, you know, I don't teach the younger kids. So obviously those conversations will be totally different with elementary school. But, you know, as far as a middle school kid goes, they're old enough to understand those concepts and have those conversations. And so, um, you know, if you find a piece that you're wanting to do with your kids that maybe kind of has a darker history with it, then have those conversations with them. Um I 
one of my kids, I was so proud of her. She chose, it was my general music kids. We do um, a protest song unit in my general music class. It's so good. (laughs) Um, If you want my ideas, email me. I'll take, I'll send them to you. Um, (laughs) But then we do a final project where they get to choose the protest song they want to do. And she chose a strange fruit by Nina Simone. And I looked at her, I said, you know what this song is about, right? And she's like, yeah, it's about, you know, lynchings and the fruit of the tree or the bodies hanging from the tree. This is a 14 year old girl. (laughs) And I said, okay. I said, as long as you're okay with it, I'm okay with it too. It's a powerful song. And she's like, yeah, my dad played this song for me since I was a little girl. He used to sing it to me. I'm like, well then, and that was such a moment too of realizing she already had that information. She already had that cultural background. And, and then I was just able to give her an opportunity to further explore something that was already part of her life. Um, and so, yeah, they're able to handle that stuff. Now, obviously, that type of piece is super intense. And because she chose it, I was able to facilitate that for her. It's not something I would present as a whole to Yeah. Um, a whole class. But yeah, I mean, we've done that. We did um, Birmingham Sunday uh, by Joan Baez, which talks about the uh, bombing of the 60th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham that killed the three little girls. Mm-hmm. Um, we have done we did a whole lesson about that. And it's amazing, too, because I always kind of do a poll of like, okay, who's heard this story before? Who has it? And there's... <laughs> there's a whole chunk of our history that these kids aren't getting because they don't get it in their history classes, but they're able to explore it through music. Um, And that's, that's one thing that I think I'm very much so a highly, you know, Kodai influenced music educator. And I love being able to connect with the students and on, you know, their cultural levels, but also, you know, teaching the history of the songs we're singing, you know, we're not just singing a song because it has a ticket ticket in it. Mm -hmm. We're, We're teaching everything about it. And you know, I might not make friends by saying this, but I feel like if we're just going to ignore the history of a song because it's useful in the classroom, mm. find something that can do both. Because I feel like if we're not talking about the history of the songs, um, then we're, we're missing part of not only, I mean, you know, first the standards, but also just holistically educating our students. Well, and I think sometimes too, and I had this nervousness too, when I first started doing this protest song unit, um, you know, our parent, how are parents going to respond to this? Like, is there going to be a parent? Yeah. Is there going to be a parent that thinks this is too political or is there going to be a parent that thinks this is just too dark? And I've been doing this unit now for four years with my music, my general music classes. We call it music alive in Hilliard. So if you hear me refer to that, that's what it is. Um, And so far, knock on wood, um, no one (laughs) has complained about it. Um, You know, I, I kind of, uh, told my principal about it and he thinks it's important. Um, And so, you know, and I think also too, as a teacher, you've got to know your demographic and your clientele, both in students and in teachers. Like, honestly, would I have been able to do a unit like this back when I worked at my old job in Southern Ohio? Probably not. Um, But, you know, you just gotta, you gotta know your people and know what they can handle. But sure. (laughs) <laughs> that was the first time, though, in four years I had a kid pick Strange Fruit. I was like, okay, we're doing this. <laughs> so I was I really proud it. of her. Awesome. Yeah, she did an amazing job. So. so why do you think so many teachers are – we've talked about it a little bit, but why do you think they're so afraid of taking steps um, to make sure that they're being aware of the cultural cultural implications of the stuff that they're teaching? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think we're not taught about how to do it in undergrad. Um, I think it's a little bit of a disservice that undergrad music education um, programs uh, miss. I think we're so focused on the pedagogical aspects of teaching and the professional aspects of teaching that we're missing the um, humanistic aspects oh, of sure. teaching. Um, and I mean, I think what I, if I think back to my undergraduate learning, I think one time we watched a video about the economic disparities of school districts in the state of Ohio. Um, and that was, I mean, it was eye opening for me because Solon is a very upper middle class, wealthy suburb where, yeah. you know, I grew up not wanting for anything. And most of the kids I went to school with grew up not wanting for anything, both at home and at school. So that was a shock to me to realize that there were programs that didn't have the facilities and teachers and resources that I grew up with at the same time, you know, I wasn't prepared to walk in to a classroom where I had 10 Muslim students who wouldn't be able to sing holiday music. Um, no. I wasn't prepared to walk into a classroom where I would have a student who couldn't make my evening concerts because she had to babysit her siblings. You know, like that's not stuff I was prepared for. And I had to kind of, you know, I'm not going to lie. Like I stuck my foot in my mouth a couple of times over the years, just figuring out how to navigate these things. And I think sometimes when we have had those foot and mouth moments, we've become, it's put us back in our box. Like, oh, I don't want to yeah. make that mistake again. So I'm just not going to even branch it. So I think it start. I think it starts at the beginning where we're just not taught to be aware of it. And then, you know, let's be honest, the predominant race of our profession is white. And yeah. so, you know, we just aren't, we don't have the experience as educators of color, <laughs> you know, you know, and I, I keep saying we, I'm an educator of color, so I should not be in that we. Um, but, you know, that experience of being different ourselves. And so we can't, identify with that. And I think that's where the fear comes from. Um, and again, it goes back to what I said before. It's that fear of the unknown or fear of, you know, making that mistake. We just, we'd just rather stay with what's familiar, but that's where we do ourselves a disservice is when we stay in that comfort zone. Exactly. I think for so many reasons in teaching, <laughs> getting out of your comfort zone is always going to be a great place to start. Man, I wish there was like a way <laughs> for I kind of force whenever I have student teachers, I force them to do something I know they're not comfortable with because, I, you know, yeah, because I just don't think that happens enough. And, you know, I, I see it with some of, you know, the amazing people I work with sometimes are just like, y'all have done that piece seven times, do something different now. Yeah. Um, yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's wonderful. Yes, the kids love it. But there's so much more out there. Yeah. So what can we do as music educators, whether it be big or small, to take some steps to make our classrooms a little bit better when it comes to cultural differences and making sure that we're respecting the history um, of these, the, the music that we're doing? Yeah, I think um, the first thing to do is really be aware of where your music is coming from. I kind of have some sure signs of when I'm and this again, this is from a choral standpoint of um 
when a piece is great. You know, I love my um, my 150 rounds in cannons book because oh, book. Oh, that beautiful book. <laughs> it's very well loved. Um, you know, it does a great job of giving historical like where what country things are come um, from and gives you a little historical context. There's a wonderful canon called uh, Yen Yera Guema. And I don't know if I said that. Oh, I'm sorry. My email just went off. Um, <laughs> Um, there, uh, is a Cuban folk song that is so great for, um, teaching, uh, tea, tikka and, uh, Timka, if you ever want to put those in, but it's also in Spanish and it's got some great Cuban rhythm to it and you can put some percussion with it. It's so great. Um, from a choral standpoint, I love earth songs. Um, I, they just have so much, so many pieces that are so great. Um, that you can really program some really rich cultural things, everything from American spirituals to Irish songs to, um, we did this be, we were going to do this beautiful piece tonight at our concert called Anima Amin. It's a Hebrew piece. It's in unison. It has this incredible violin part. Um, but the piece actually, there is historical, um, notes in it that the Jews in the Holocaust would sing this piece as they were walking into the gas chambers. And I know, and you could hear the song De Crescendo as the gas would come out and they would eventually pass away. Um, and so oh, what a powerful connection to that piece. I love oh my goodness. Right here. Yes. Oh like my goodness. it is, it is so beautiful. Um, it's very accessible either to a young voice or an older voice. Um, if you can do it with the piano and the violin to the, the violin is that beautiful haunting Eastern European, you know, Yiddish fiddle sound that is just, um, you know, so appropriate to that piece. And that piece is really great too, because um, it actually, the text of it is like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Um, And it just, it's just a beautiful song of hope. And like, I, as I was introducing it to my kids and as we kept singing it, I'm like, you think, you know, put, it's so hard to put ourselves in that mindset of that horrible time. But to think that people are singing this song, that means I believe I believe that he will come no matter how long he tarries. I believe um, that, you know, to just have that conviction, even in the most horrific of circumstances, I thought was so powerful. And then it's funny, last Friday we were singing it, you know, for our last time in a really long time. And I found myself getting very emotional because, you know, so much is unknown right now in the world. And, you know, to obviously I did not have any idea as programming these pieces that we would end up where we are, but to hear my kids singing that piece, you know, in this very unrestless and unknown time was just really powerful. Um, So anyway, so I digress, but yeah, earth songs is great. You know, look inside. There's another great piece um, called Tafta Hindi. It's a, actually it's an Arabic um, and, um, it's very easy, just T, 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 and you can, there's a great choral arrangement of it, but then you could also use it just as a folk song, um, you know, in your classes in unison, great call and response. Um, another great T ticka, um, piece two for you, Kodai people. And yeah, just really look at what your pieces are, um, 
there's a wonderful arrangement uh, by Victor Johnson. It's called Tres Canciones de los Elementos, which is three songs of the elements. They're all in Spanish while they are not um, necessarily cultural pieces um, of a Latin country uh, directly. They, the Spanish is beautiful and accurate and there are there's an SAB arrangement, an SA arrangement, and an SATB arrangement of it, and it's so accessible. It's a great way to get kids doing a multi movement um, choral piece, but it's super, each song's like you know a minute and a half long, um, and the Spanish is super accessible to it. Um, as well, and anytime I've done that piece, I've always taken one of my Spanish speakers out and I say, "Hey, teach us the Spanish." I'll let her or him do it, and the kids love that. And there, we did a couple Spanish pieces this year, and um, I have a little girl that's from Venezuela, and you know, is fluent in both Spanish and English, and the kids are so impressed that she can speak both Spanish and English and they're like how do you do that and she's like well this is just how I grew up and it gives the perspective of like wow I grew up speaking one language she knows too she's probably a little bit smarter than I am um I love love yeah so giving the kids that ownership of it when you can is really cool yeah, so I know that a lot of us right now with current situation are going to be isolated and we'll have some, you know, a little bit extra time on our hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's definitely a time for us to look at our curriculum, look at the songs that we're using um, and just make sure everything that we're, we're saying is true is true. You know, if, if some if we're saying something is from um, from Mexico, is it from Mexico? Things is like it, that. Right. You know, in make, making sure that there's no implications that we don't intend on in our repertoire, mm-hmm. but also just kind of reaching out, finding new ones. I love the resources that you um, you talked about today. Um, I really appreciate it. Of so, course. Kelsey, where can we find more of you? Um, so I am on Instagram at Jaguar Choirs. Uh, that's my Instagram, my school Instagram. Um, if you want to see pictures of my kid and my cat, you can go to my personal Instagram, which is at Kelbell three two six K E L B E L L three two six. You know, I'm on Facebook. If you want to add me as a friend, I do Facebook Messenger and. Always, always, you know, feel free to send me an email at uh, Kelsey underscore Burkett at HBOE.org. I'm happy to converse and uh, exchange ideas whenever someone needs it. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kelsey. I really appreciate you taking some time and talking about something that is so important for us teachers. It truly is. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of That Music Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review on iTunes as this really helps new music teachers find the podcast. You can find the show notes and more at thatmusicteacher.com and you can join the free General Music Mastermind Facebook group at thatmusicteacher.com slash mastermind. I hope that you have an amazing week making music with your kids.